This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Today we are speaking with the legendary artist, educator, and political activist, Buffy St. Marie. Buffy was born to Cree parents on the Piapot Reservation in Saskatchewan, Canada. She was orphaned as an infant and moved to Massachusetts, where she would later get her degree in Eastern philosophy from the University of Massachusetts. In the early 60s, Buffy played the coffee houses of Greenwich Village, where her music was so well received that her career skyrocketed to international fame soon thereafter. Almost 50 years after the release of her first album, It's My Way, Buffy's new album, Power in the Blood, is filled with the same fierce messages, eclecticism, and compassion unique to this unstoppable woman. Hello, Buffy. We are beyond blessed to have you on the show. Welcome. Good, good, good. I love your title. It's so good. (laughs) I'm learning. Rewild. Perfect. You are an extremely creative person. Not only are you a musician and a poet in many different genres, from rock and roll to protest music to love songs, but you're a painter as well. I've heard you talk about how everyone has their own creative talent to share, but often as children, we're put into schools that squelch that creativity. So in these times of judgmental influence and distraction, how can we foster creativity at every age? And secondly... For the artist in the audience, how can we authentically share our art without falling into the trap of capitalist commodification and fetishism found in the art world, which you've been able to do so beautifully? I don't know how well I've been able to do it, but I hear you. It's definitely out there. (laughs) And you're right. I think just about everybody is born talented. And I don't think it's just the schools that discourage talent. I think it's parents and advertising and 
cartoons and just about everything, you know. And I, I think all of this comes back to, I mean, my belief is the best things in life are free, like breastfeeding, you know. <laughs> there's, there's nobody making any money off it, therefore it's not in your face all the time in the media and in schools and in parental concerns. And we're just living in a time where merchants are the kings. That's what we're experiencing in our contemporary life is that money rules and coins and it's a big monopoly game. And we kind of know it, but we look the other way because we say, oh, no, it's probably just my own paranoia. No, it's really out there. It seems in history is cyclical. And sometimes it was the church (laughs) that were running things. And other times it was the Inquisition or uh, in India, sometimes it would be the merchant class. And I have a degree in Oriental philosophy. So I always, I always come back to that when I'm thinking about our contemporary times, how just merchants, coins, merchandising, more, more, more money, exponential growth. It's a crock, but it's a meme of our lives. And yet on the other hand, if you take Any group of kids to the beach when they're four or five, they all make art, even though their parents probably don't even recognize it as art because the parents are up there sitting on the blanket, you know, talking to each other and eating chips and thinking about their own daily struggles. But here are all these kids, and they're using their imaginations, and they're making pictures, and they're dancing, and nobody told them how. They're hearing songs in their head. They're making sculpture. We don't call it sculpture. We call it sandcastles. But they're thinking about architecture, and they're using their imaginations, and they're making up characters, you know, every day. They're making up dramas and stories. They're so creative. And I guess... You know, you want to know how to foster creativity at every age? What I tell people is, number one, don't discourage your kids by distracting them to anything that's going to take them, you know, to make them think that their creativity isn't of equal value. I think it's the most valuable thing we have is our originality and our creativity. But, you know, kids get distracted because of what their parents like to do, you know, sports or, you know, money or, I don't know, a social life. Yet this creativity, I don't think we lose it. I think we retain it, even as adults. Just go into a room, go go to the store and buy uh, four or five small canvases and some acrylic paint and put the put the different colors of paint you know, onto a plate or something. And then go into a room and turn the lights almost all the way down so you can't really see what you're painting. And just throw the paint up there. That's true creativity. That's fun. That's discovery. That's being a bored child who's going to find something to do with these paints or crayons or whatever you got. And I think that that spark of creativity, once an adult remembers it, can really fill your life with a a creative joy that you thought was impossible. I resonate with that a lot, you know, reawakening that creative spark that might be lying dormant but isn't gone. Yeah, I don't think it's ever gone. You know, I, I suppose, you know, like puppies and kittens, there's a certain learning period where we're, when it's easiest for us to, um, come up with that kind of stuff but i don't know try it but you know you also asked about you know how do you how do you share your art without being totally commodified and you know selling out i think in my own case i just do what i want to do i I never expected to be a success at anything i got out of college and i thought i was going to india to continue my studies i had a degree in oriental philosophy but i stopped in greenwich village just to you know, see if uh, anybody wanted to hear these songs I was writing all, all my life and that I'd sung uh, to my 
college dorm mates in college and little coffee houses. And uh, all of a sudden I had a career, so I was quite surprised by it. So it's not as though I looked forward all my life to becoming um, a professional artist. <laughs> I mean, that's really how to get commodified. <laughs> and I, I just kind of lucked into it. I just got lucky with things that came very natural to me. So if you are an original, I think the thing to do is to treasure that. And I think I've always thought very differently from my peers and from managers and agents and record companies. They were all chasing whatever last month's hit was. Oh, sing like Madonna, sing like, you know, Britney, sing like somebody else. But to me, the only reason for getting on a stage in the first place in my own personal life was that I needed, I wanted to demo the songs. I would have loved it if somebody else could have done that and I could have gone to India, but I was the only one who had the songs and I thought the songs were valuable. So that's where I was coming from. I was coming from not, I want to be a singer because I like pretty dresses and makeup and want to be on TV. It was, I'm a songwriter how can I get these messages out? And so I was a little more like a journalist than, than a pop star, and I'm very surprised that I've had as much success as I've had. I think you just do it. You know, you, you just do it. Whatever it is that is original to you, don't. I mean, that's why you're there, is your originality, not how well you can sing, you know, the latest top 20. Yeah, it's that leap of faith, allowing that pure passion to bubble to the surface. I feel that a lot in my life. Yeah, do you? Yeah, I do. I, you know, I just leap not knowing what the outcome will be. Yeah, like a child, like a kid who's, you know how sometimes a child will really need to be heard and, and they'll have an idea and they just talk over you and, and they really need to be heard or they're, they're, they're coloring their pictures and they don't want to be interrupted or they're making their music and they're really, really happy. Nobody has to tell them. Nobody had to tell them how because they're playing. So I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that uh, creativity in the first place, it begins with play. So if you're attracted to do something, you know, you want to be a writer, a journalist, a blogger, a painter, a dancer, whatever it is, if you're attracted to it, that's your fuel. That's your, that's your real fuel is your own attraction to it. If you don't want to do it, don't. Go become a bean counter. It's okay. There's a lot of beans out there that need counting. But if you have something original that you love to do, oh, give other people a chance to, um, to see that and... Uh, um, not so that you'll have a career, but because that's the only contribution we have is our originality, I think. Little wheels spin and spin and the big wheel turn around and around. Little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn around and around. Little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn around and around. Little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn around and around. Merry Christmas, jingle bells, Christ is born and the devil's in hell. Hearts, they shrink pockets swell, everybody know and nobody tell, little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn round, round, little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn around and around, oh the sins of Caesar's men, cry the pious citizens, petty thieve the five and tens, and the big wheel turn round, round, little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn around and around, little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn round and around, blame the angels. Blame the fates, blame the Jews or your sister Kate. Teach your children who to hate, and the big wheel turn around, round. Little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn around, round. Little wheels spin 
and spin big wheel turn around and around turn your back on weeds you've hold silly sinful sins you've sold add your straw to the camel's load pray like hell when the world explode little wheel spin and spin big wheel turn around and around little wheel spin and spin big wheel turn around and around swing your girl fiddle say later on the piper pay do see do swing and sway dead will dance on judgment day little wheel spin and spin big wheel turn around and around little wheel spin and spin big wheel turn around and around little wheel spin and spin big wheel turn around and around little wheel spin and spin big wheel turn around around little wheel spin and spin big wheel turn around round little wheel spin and spin big wheel turn round round I've heard your excitement about this current movement towards global awareness. When you came out with the song, Now That the Buffalo Are Gone in 1964, and My Country, Tis of Thy People, You're Dying, in 1966, it was shocking. It was shocking not only because you were speaking about the genocide of indigenous people that was being ignored and hidden from the mainstream, but speaking out as an indigenous person, and a woman nonetheless, was unheard of. So even though there is this growing awareness that Native Americans were murdered and their land stolen and their children stolen from them and sent away to residential schools, there are still injustices burdening Native communities today. For example, the uranium mining or the tar sands in Alberta, Canada. What are some tangible solutions towards justice for Native people? And how do people of different races work through intergenerational trauma and become allies towards a restorative future? Wow, that was kind of a bunch of questions. They were all (laughs) good. I don't know where to start. (laughs) No, good questions, good questions, very good. I would agree with you, you know, in saying uh, that awareness alone about Native issues isn't enough. You know, what, what can we actually do? There's a lot that we can do, but I don't think that it's the kind of what you can do that your parents and teachers would give you as an assignment. (laughs) So I'm not going to do that. Because I think each person's life is different, and I think every day we have an opportunity to make something better. And if you're thinking about it like that, it automatically crosses racial lines anyway. Because if you're making things better, in my opinion, you're making things better for everybody. If you make things better for Aboriginal people, you're basically on the you're on the level of fairness and correcting injustice. It's that's good for everybody. So in the first place, you want to get out of the race box. I have a strange life, you know. I'm in the big cities one day, you know, operating at a very high level. Other times, I'm lost in a city. Nobody knows who I am, and I'm just wandering around the streets. Other times, I'm out at some reserve or an indigenous area in you know Scandinavia, Australia, something. So I get to see a lot of ways to do things, and I'm aware that people have different languages and different styles, and people are at different degrees of ripeness. So when I'm trying to do something through a song or a painting or something, I try to, I really know all these people. You know, they are actually a part of my day-to-day history. I know, I've been with them, I know them, and so just the idea of communicating as an artist to the whole wide world. You do it in a way that's very uh, much a parallel to think globally, act locally. And what I try to do is 
everything I can when it when something comes up. You know, it, I I try to be able to, you know, I see some place that needs that needs a check, or that needs you know needs some money or needs some advice or different needs come up every day and you address them as you can. But as a singer in a big concert or a, a global person writing something, then I want to be kind of like a folk song in that it's going to last for generations and cross language barriers and country barriers. Actually, I'm singing or writing for the individual in each person. I'm only singing to one person. I'm not singing to 120,000 people all at the same time, even though that's the reality of who shows up. I'm still singing to the the eachness of each person, the person that that is similar to me inside or different to me inside. So it's funny how I think that's what artists do. I think that's one of the characteristics of the work of many artists, you know, from, you know, if you want to think about, you know, white folks' art, think about the Renaissance, the, the sculptures and the paintings. Some of them kind of don't travel out of 15th century Italy, and others of them really do. And I think that if you look at the world kindly and you look at history kindly, and when you're thinking about artists, many artists have managed to reach both the global and the individual in whatever their work is. And I I think I've gotten lucky with a few songs that did that, you know, whether they were simple love songs or, you know, songs that addressed war and peace or real complicated issues like My Country, Tis of Thy People, You're Dying, and You Are Right. That was the first time that the word genocide was used by an artist in describing North America. And it's real important. You know, I rewrote that song. I, I rewrote it recently for Truth and Reconciliation in Canada. I kind of localized it to Canadian issues, but it's basically the same thing. Are you aware of the doctrine of discovery, by the way? You read my mind. <laughs> I was just about to ask you about the doctrine of discovery because I listened to a lecture you gave at Arizona State University where you explained that this genocide of Native people didn't stem from racism, but rather colonialism. Yeah. You know, some of the questions that you're asking, it kind of all can go back to the doctrine of discovery. And I'm with a lot of non-Indian people with good hearts who ask, how could my ancestors ever have done this? And they feel terribly guilty and quite challenged and confused as to how it could have happened. And If you go back to the Doctrine of Discovery, the Doctrine of Discovery was put together in the 15th century with several overdubs by several popes, but it was done during the Inquisition. I mean, that's a very important point. The indigenous people of the world were discovered by colonials during the Inquisition. Do you realize what white people were doing to white people in those days? So for me, it's a very informative and somewhat comforting in a funny way, thought to realize that the cruelties of the 15th century that came around the globe and wiped out indigenous people legally because they had not already been Christianized by some Christian power. The Doctrine of Discovery said that if uh, European explorers were exploring and came across a piece of land that was inhabited that if the people were not Christian, they were not supposed to be treated as human. They were supposed to be enslaved or destroyed or converted. But in any case, 
the racket said that they were to be controlled and exploited by the people who were running the church, who, in my mind, were not Christians. That was Christendom. Christendom is the racket that racketeers make out of, <laughs> you know, the teachings of Jesus. It has nothing to do with the teaching of Jesus. It's just another racket, and it's been going on since before the Old Testament. And that's what happened to indigenous people. So if we remember that the doctrine of discovery is still in effect in both the United States and Canada, and Johnson versus McIntosh, which is a law, it has been quoted during the last 10 years. So don't think that the doctrine of discovery, which gives colonialism from Europe the legal upper hand to enslave, to exploit, to extract natural resources, everything. It's all based in this stupid thing that needs to be expunged. So, you know, of course we're working, we're hoping that Pope Francis might be the one to finally expunge this. But who knows, whether it happens or not, the good news about the bad news is that more people are starting to understand the position of indigenous people throughout the world because we're exposing the doctrine of discovery to ordinary moms and pops. And it helps to answer that question, how could my ancestors have done that? They were forced to do it. Henry VIII was making business deals with the church at the same time as the doctrine of discovery. He went along with the, the doctrine of discovery because it was a business deal for him. He had to seem as though he were on the side of the political church of the time. So in the laws of the doctrine of discovery was very powerful in Spain, in Italy, in uh, the Netherlands, in France, in Portugal, and in England. And those were the laws that were operative when Columbus was out sailing the ocean blue and Cabot and Cartier and the rest of them were claiming indigenous land for the crowns and churches of Europe. So I think that if people know that, there's a lot of forgiveness and understanding of just the boneheadedness and the racketeering of those faraway times. And it also gives people somewhere to go with it. Let's do away with the doctrine of discovery. Let's discuss it. Let's, let's, let's see some eyebrows go up. Oh, I never knew that, you know. I, to me, it's all good. Now that your big eyes are finally opened Now that you're wondering how must they feel Meaning them that you've chased across America's movie screens Now that you're wondering how can it be real That the ones you've called colorful, noble and proud in your school propaganda They starve in their splendor You've asked for my comment, I simply will render my country is of thy people you're dying now that the long houses breed superstition you force us to send our toddlers away to your schools where they're taught despise their traditions forbid them their languages then further say that American history really began when Columbus 
set sail out of Europe and stress that the nation of leeches that's conquered this land are the biggest and bravest and boldest and best and yet where in your history books is the tale of the genocide basic to this country's birth of the preachers who lied how the bill of rights failed how a nation of patriots return to their earth and where will it tell of the liberty bell as it rang with a flood over kinzo mud and a brave uncle sam in alaska this year my country is of thy people you're dying the west with her shivering children in zero degrees blankets for your land so the treaties attest oh well blankets for land is a bargain indeed and the blankets were those uncle sam had collected from smallpox disease dying soldiers that day and the tribes were wiped out and the history books censored a hundred years of your statesmen have felt it's better this way yet a few of the conquered have somehow survived their blood runs the redder though genes have been paled from the grand canyon's caverns to craven sad hills the wounded the losers the robbed sing their tale from los angeles county to upstate new york the white nation fattens while others grow lean all oh, the tricked and evicted they know what i mean my country is of thy people you're dying the past it just crumbled the future just threatens our lifeblood shut up in your chemical tanks and now here you come bill of sale in your hand and surprise in your eyes that we're lacking in thanks for the blessings of civilization you've brought us the lessons you've taught us the ruin you've brought us oh see what our trust in america's bought us my country is of thy people you're dying now that the pride of the sires receives charity now that we're harmless and safe behind laws now that my life's to be known as your heritage now that even the graves have been robbed now that our own 
novelty Hands on our hearts We salute you, your victory Choke on your blue, white and scarlet hypocrisy Pitying the blindness that you've never seen That the eagles of war whose wings lent you glory They were never no more than carrion crows Pushed the wrens from their nest Stole their eggs, changed their story The mockingbird sings it It's all that she knows Ah, what can I do? Say a powerless few With a lump in your throat And a tear in your eye Can't you see that their poverty's profiting you? My country, tis of thy people you're dying. Yeah, absolutely incredible to view it through that lens and work through it. And I'm wondering how you move through your feelings about the government, especially after they blacklisted you from reaching people with your messages of truth. How do you think the millennial generation can engage in a proactive relationship with the government in these times of disruption and distrust? One of the reasons for disruption and distrust is because we keep using the word the government. It's not the government. The United States government didn't blacklist me. They didn't pass an act of Congress saying Buffy's music sucks or Buffy's music is too uh, radical or she tells the truth too much. None of that. No. It's not the government. And people will sometimes say, well, didn't that make you hate the United States? No. And didn't, you know, doesn't Harper make you hate Canada? No. No. What we elect is an administration. It's a handful of cronies. No matter how you look at it, that's what it is. It's a handful of guys. And they are hell-bent for success, according to whatever, whatever they're going for. It's usually money and power. It's not the government. It's an administration. And with Lyndon Johnson, who was a Democrat, and Richard Nixon, who was a Republican, each of them had guys in the back room making nasty phone calls. That's how it's done. It's not the government. So the millennials, don't be afraid of these people who come on as if they're cobras. They're not. They're little worms. They do nasty little things. They do things like, you know, like some teenage girl movie. It's, it's really nasty, you know. It's word of mouth, and it's personal networking. It's a good old boy thing, but it's not Canada, and it's not America. And they only last for a few years. Then we throw those rascals out, and we elect somebody else. I hope that that's helpful in people demythologizing the government. The government is us. We elect somebody, and then our lamest reaction is to elect somebody, give him the keys to the cash register and power, and then forget about him. It's too tempting. That's how politicians turn into racketeers. The game is kind of fixed, and what we need to do is vote, you know, elect, and follow up. But... You've got to keep on. You've got to keep the pressure on. You know, we think that we, our role stops when we vote, but no, it doesn't, unfortunately. 
thousand lives and still they find their vision and soon they'll leave you to your yesterday and they'll sing bye-bye scars of history and bye-bye bankers trust Aquarius is shining but the sun is romanticize indigeneity. I heard an interview that you once said that people wanted you to come on stage as some Pocahontas figure earlier in your career, but you have shattered a one-dimensional perception of yourself and embody so many dimensions as artist, musician, teacher, philosopher, activist, farmer. So in these times of great displacement, whether from land or ancestry, 
what does it mean to be indigenous in today's world? And do you think that people can grow to be indigenous to land that they don't historically come from? I think people can be can become something like indigenous, but no, I don't know. You know, I think we're kind of stretching the definition of indi- indigenous a little too far. We need a different word, and I can't come up with it right now. I think that you can become effective and you could become a supporter of the indigenous people who happen to come from there. But, you know, there are a lot of ramifications to identity, including an indigenous identity. I mean, if you marry an indigenous person and, you know, you've been married and raising a family for 40 years, you're pretty much a member of the group. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to worry about the definition so much. Truly indigenous people who come from colonialized nations. I mean, now we're starting to define it a little more, you know. Truly indigenous, you know, like aboriginal people from Australia who are unfortunately sitting on the only land to which they have title and it has uranium. I mean, they're screwed, (laughs) you know, because they're indigenous. Now, if they had grown up in families, in colonialized families, how you grow up is very, very important as to your worldview and your effectiveness in the world, in both show business and what we're talking about now, you know, contemporary issues of indigeneity. Because, like, when when I first went to Greenwich Village, I had never met a businessman. I had never met a lawyer. I was dealing with people who, for generations, had been colonial racketeers. I mean, I would call them colonial racketeers. Other people would just say that they were very good at the profit motive. But they knew how to exploit (laughs) <laughs> they knew how to steal. They knew how. They knew all about payola. They, in other words, they were networked, and indigenous people traditionally are not. So there's a lot to be said for, an, in contrast, between someone who was coming from a non-business family like myself, and most indigenous families would be coming from non-business families. We don't know the rules of the game. It's like walking into a Vegas casino. You've never been there. The deck is stacked against you, and you're going to lose because it's a setup. It's meant to exploit you. It's not meant to be fair. It's a, it's a game to some people you know, who, who grow up like that. The whole idea of colonialism is, I mean, my motto, stay calm and decolonize. We're all living in this colonial, ever-ripening, ever-changing, what would you call it, like a hallucination. I mean, money itself is a hallucination. Of itself, it has no value, you know? Yeah, people are traveling across the globe at such speed these days and moving from countryside to city, and it's like a diaspora of sorts. It kind of is, but that's not necessarily all bad. See, I, I think travel is good for anybody, and I'm really happy with certain Canadian reserves whereby they take the junior and senior classes traveling to places like Africa and New Zealand, and you know, they, they take them to other indigenous areas to see the world through other indigenous eyes and how wonderful that is. In my own case, even though I come from a heartfelt position of indigeneity, I love the big world, too, and I have certainly profited in both the brain, the heart, the pockets, everything, by traveling. It's fun. It makes you smarter. And yet our reserves in Canada, especially in my own family, the people who've stayed on the reserves are very, very dear to us. They haven't had travel, and we have, but they have had community life in a very special way, too, which 
they, you know, hopefully they share with us. So I, I like it all. I say travel as much as you can, learn as much as you can, read as much as you can, listen to all the music you can. <laughs> you know, who knows? We might only live once. <laughs> your spirit and non-judgmental, non-shaming openness to the world. Thank you. And I'm wondering, because of your connection to your ancestral cosmology and beliefs, and because you studied Eastern philosophy, I'm wondering what are some of the most powerful spiritual wisdoms or takeaways that help guide you to live your life so fully? You know, there's not one single thing that I would mention. Um, Oriental philosophy, what it got me was Ah, a big smile, because I was so thrilled to know that other people besides myself loved the Creator. That's what, when I discovered Oriental philosophy, it, it showed me that minds were greater than what I was finding in my own little neighborhood. 
I found Oriental philosophy when I was in high school, and <laughs> there wasn't anybody who'd ever heard the word reincarnation. <laughs> Not that I believe in it, I don't. But after the Beatles came along, there was a big fad for people to study pseudo-Hinduism. <laughs> so I've kind of seen it come and go. So when I learned from studying all these religions was that, you know what, originality in how you perceive the creator comes directly from your circumstances of where you live on the planet and who you ran into and what you read and all of that. But all these people agree that we are continually ripening. And if I have a religion or a spiritual or you know, kind of heartfelt concept to impart to people that kind of comes from this area of my brain, it's that we're ripening. It's like it says in my song, We Are Circling, and what it implies in Carry It On, that other song that's also on Power in the Blood, which is my new album, it has to do with ripening. We are ripening, ripening together, babies, elders, bozos, and, ang- and angels. This is how we grow. This is how we get to know. And I think that every single one of us, even the people we don't like, is, whether we like it or not, evolving, getting better, learning. We're all different, and we're all starting from each one from our own original place, and we all go at different rates. But I don't think any of us is very ripe. I think if you say that, you know, I have a positive attitude and a humility, it's because I I think that we're all really kindergarten babies on this planet. I think we're just beginning. And just like a second grader will look down his nose at a first grader and say, eh, she spills her milk, I don't, right, or... The first grader will look down her nose at a, a kindergarten kid and say, oh, and they wet their pants. I don't, you know. We're always looking down our noses at somebody who's five minutes younger than we are, and there's no profit in it at all. <laughs> you might as well realize that, you know, we're all evolving, and it's very exciting. Mine is, and yours is, and so is even that guy neither one of us likes. So... <laughs> I don't know, I just think that's the reality of, of life, and that being the case, it doesn't pay to put your nose too far in the air. God is alive, magic is afoot. God is alive, magic is afoot. God is afoot, magic is alive, life is afoot. Magic never dies. God never sickened. Many poor men lied, many sick men lied. Magic never weakened, magic never hid. Magic always ruled. God is afoot. God never died. God was ruler, though his funeral lengthened, though his mourners thickened. Magic never fled, though his shrouds were hoisted, the naked God did live. Though his words were twisted, the naked magic thrived. Though his death was published round and round the world, God did not believe. Many hurt men wondered, many struck men bled. Magic never faltered, magic always led. 
Many stones were rolled, but God would not lie down. Many wild men lied, many fat men listened. Though they offered stones, magic still was fed. Though they locked their coffers, God was always served. Magic is a foot, God rules. Alive is a foot, alive is in command. Many weak men hungered, many strong men thrived. Though they boasted solitude, God was at their side. Nor the dreamer in his cell, nor the captain on the hill. Magic is alive. Though his death was pardoned, round and round the world, the heart would not believe. Though laws were carved in marble, they could not shelter men. Though altars built in parliaments, they could not order men. Police arrested magic, and magic went with them. For magic loves the hungry, but magic would not tarry. It moves from arm to arm. It would not stay with them. Magic is a foot. It cannot come to harm. It rests in an empty palm. It spawns in an empty mind. But magic is no instrument. Magic is the end. Many men drove magic, but magic stayed behind. Many strong men lied. They only passed through magic and out the other side. Many weak men lied. They came to God in secret, and though they left Him nourished, they would not tell who healed. Though mountains danced before them, they said that God was dead. Though His shrouds were hoisted, the naked God did live. This I mean to whisper to my mind. This I mean to laugh with in my mind. This I mean my mind to serve till service is but magic moving through the world and mind itself is magic coursing through the flesh and flesh itself is magic dancing on a clock and time itself the magic length of God. I'd like to end this conversation by asking you about your new album, Power in the Blood. What are you wanting to inspire in people who engage with your music? The whole song, We Are Circling, to me, is like a mantra. It's like a deliberate mantra. It's real simple, but I don't know. It's what I really mean and what I really say. You know, I try to kind of make those little pearls of wisdom stickable, especially in a little campfire song like that, you know. And the idea of, you know, I, I really believe in the positivity that's coming through in the songs, but I also, also clearly do see some of the negative portraits 
that I present in songs. And none of it's deliberate. It's just kind of the way I see it and what's happening in my own daily life. I mean, I'll go through an airport and all kinds of things will happen. There'll be all kinds of joys and bummers. You know, every five minutes is something new. You know, you see somebody who you wish you could know, and then you see somebody and you hope you don't sit next to them. And sure enough, you do, and it turns out you have things in common. So I don't know. Life's a trip. <laughs> you think I would have come up with something better than that in the last 50 years, but keep your nose on the joy trail and share what you can share when you can share it, and don't be afraid to take a bath and take a nap. and Don't burn out. You know, that's kind of my advice. Very, very easy when you really do care and when, when your eyes are being opened to some of the justices and injustices of the world. It's really tempting to just have an emotional reaction and burn out and then go nowhere no no your your observations are probably true you know go slow and careful if you really care come up with a little strategy with of how you can uh, be happy and and share that happiness and make things better for yourself and and others it's really a lot of fun well buffy thank you so much for your time your wisdom and your spirit you are in the truest sense an inspiration and it's exhilarating to hear you speak so thank you again for being on Unlearn and Rewild oh my pleasure my pleasure Anna and um, again congratulations on your your great title Unlearn and Rewild I'm going to be thinking about that <laughs> well wonderful and I got one for you stay calm and decolonize <laughs> I'm keeping to that okay you have a great day enjoy your day Buffy thank you again thank you bye
This is how we get to know It's a celebration This is sacred We are circling, circling together We are singing for listening to Unlearn and Rewild. This is Ayana Young. The music you heard today was all by Buffy St. Marie. The songs included Native North American Child, Little Wheel Spin and Spin, My Country Tis of Thy People You're Dying, Generation, Carry It On, God is Alive, Magic is Afoot, and We Are Circling. Our theme music is Like a River by Kate Wolfe. And thank you to our editor, Nicole West, and producer, Marchion. Drifting on the wind, through the mountains like a river. Like a river